Hello, and welcome back to They Made Another One, where each week we discuss an oft-forgotten installment in a franchise and see if you should check it out for yourself. I'm one of your hosts, Corey, and in the words of Peter, by the way, officially, there are no Italian homosexuals. It makes Michelangelo and Leonardo very inconvenient. And with me, I've got Liam. Corey, whatever it is you've done or haven't done, you've broken my heart. Damn, fuck. That's cutting. That's a bold way to start. And Mitch? In the words of Dickie Greenleaf, I could fuck this icebox. I love it so much. (laughs) I know that this isn't like a funny movie per se, but Dickie Greenleaf is the funniest name we have encountered in a movie. Dickie. It sounds like a an ironic like stoner name, doesn't it? Like just it does. like it's like my name is Cockweed LMAO. Like it's so fucking stupid. Yeah, that name alone could get a remake. Like you make a different movie, but just have Dicky Greenleaf. A guy in it. named Dicky Greenleaf. But like Dicky Greenleaf straight up sounds like a super bad name. Well, I mean, to quote a prophetic cab driver at the start of the movie, I can tell you the Greenleaf name opens a lot of doors. And boy, howdy, does it ever. Boy, yeehaw, does it ever. So, we're talking about the talented Mr. Ripley. We're back in our bullshit in a completely different way. This is sort of skewing more towards our Marty Scorsese bullshit. More of our, like, a movie that is very well known and fairly critically acclaimed bullshit. We don't get to these a lot. But we're doing a movie with a bit of a reputation here. And this was a Mitch pick, which will surprise few, I'm sure. <laughs> your, your picks have a brand, and I think that's good. Uh, what do you but mean? I do. A 1950s thriller set in Italy? Who could have thought? Well, it's not, uh, it's not made in the 50s, it's made in 99, but good set year. in the 50s. You know. Yeah, that's the movie's only fault. Is that it was set in the 50s? No, that, that it was it made, in, made the in the 90s. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so Mitch, I want to know why did you pick this movie? Well, I've seen this movie a few times, um, and I'm I'm a big fan of the Tom Ripley character. There's quite a few movies that are um, adaptations of uh, those novels. The novels are written by Pat- Patricia Highsmith, who's a very influential figure in uh, thriller fiction. She was an American novelist, kind of a complicated character. Um, not all not everything about her is good definitely she she had some flaws as an individual she wrote this novel in 1955 and then she continued to sort of develop the tom ripley character throughout the 70s and uh like well well into uh well she, she died in the 90s so i think her last one was in 1991 and that was ripley underwater but but um They've been adapted into movies. She also wrote Strangers on a Train. So I like her work. I don't necessarily like her as a, as a person. Um, but she wrote great fiction. So I, I picked this movie because I really like the performances. I love the the themes it is. It almost feels like a a pop version of like a Harold Pinter play in a lot of ways. The ways that the characters are written with such precision. Um and the way that the dialogue is all loaded and, and filled with like quadruple meanings. And it, it's very sort of a Hitchcockian movie too. And uh, Highsmith obviously wrote Strangers on a Train, which Hitchcock sometimes said was his favorite movie. I mean, he also uh, said it 
Shadow of a Doubt was his favorite. So it depended on the day. But uh, fucking flip flopper. Yeah. So th- that's kind of why I, I picked this movie. I'm I'm a big fan of this sort of fiction, and, and I love movies about uh, deception. And so this is like one of the one of the best when it comes to movies about con men. And so this is a movie that I'll say I hadn't seen it before. It's one of those movies among very many where I had every intent to get to it at some point. I knew it had a relative level of renown. Obviously the cast is like off the rails um, and I just hadn't gotten around to it. So it was an excuse for me to do that. But Liam, what about you? Had you seen it before? It seems like something that maybe you might've scoped at some point. It kind of seems like it's got a bit of a Liam Lane to it. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it would have. For some reason, I put it on my watch list years ago, and I, I don't remember why that was, because I had never heard of this author. I, I didn't even know they were based on books. I didn't know what genre this movie was. Um, I think I knew Matt Damon was in it, but besides that, I, I knew very little about this movie. So um, I don't remember what it was that made me put this movie on my watch list. Uh, you know, like I've heard the name a whole lot, but that wouldn't have been enough to make me put it there. So I must have heard something at some point that interested me. Um, so I, I have wanted to watch it, but uh, I never, I never put it on. So this was uh, my first time around, and. Uh, yeah, I knew I knew just about nothing. So have you, I was have stoked you to see it. Of like the other film adaptations of this movie, or or of like the other Ripley films, like Ripley's Game or like The American Friend, um, any of like the other like movies that are kind of adaptations of her work. No, Tom no Ripley, I, I, the character. I have I haven't heard of them. No. Yeah, it's it's sort of referred to as the Ripley ad, um, and there's a whole bunch of books that she wrote. <laughs> dang so we could revisit this franchise again it's not just like remakes of this story yeah the adaptation of, of ripley's game from uh i think it's from the 90s no it's, it might be like 2002 i think i don't remember exactly but uh it, it stars john malkovich and he plays tom ripley and it's uh it's really good <laughs> it's directed by liliana calvani who's a very controversial italian director she made the night porter <laughs> which is like a legendary exploitation film <laughs> I, I started laughing on the one hand just because obviously we've had a Night Porter experience, but also just I thought I pictured how funny it would be if you stopped to say she's a very controversial Italian and then the sentence just ends. No, well, like there's a lot of <laughs> controversial Italian directors, but I think like she's she's up there. She's really up there. <laughs> I just love the idea of saying, ah, they they are a very controversial Italian. <laughs> Yeah, there's a few um, controversial Italians in this movie. Just a handful. But um yeah, this is this is a cool movie. It's a good chance to get to this and it's it's nice to know that it's something we could revisit that sort of like inherently would have a different flavor because you know, it's not like they just got the cast back and did like four more or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's cool. And then okay, somebody was somebody inhaled. Yeah, I'm just I'm curious Mitch, have they ever uh reused any of the same actors in any of these movies or is it always like a reset every time they do an adaptation? As far as I know, it's mostly a reset. I think uh there was one in 2005, yeah, that was I think it was Ripley Underwater and uh it was I think it might have some people carrying over from uh Ripley's Game, which is the one I I just mentioned, but I don't think uh, John Malkovich is back for it. Um, for some reason, uh, the 91. movie is called Ripley Underground. Underground. 
Hmm. But the book is called Ripley Underwater. I don't know why you would change okay. that. <laughs> they read the book. They were like, that's stupid. They were he, like, can't, can't, he can't breathe down there. I can't say that one's got well, Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Well, Ripley Underground is also an, a book by her that was written in 1970. So, Oh, but I Googled Ripley Underwater film and it gave me Ripley Underground film. I think I meant to say Ripley Underground is the... Whatever. The so what, ca- what came first for you, Mitch? Did you read these books or did you watch a movie? Uh, no, I, I read, uh, I, I, I saw this movie first. This was actually my, my first way into it. I, I had seen Strangers on a Train first as adaptations of Highsmith, but, um, my first of like the Ripley series was this movie. And then I sought out, uh, uh, Ripley's game. And then I also watched the American friend, which is a 1977 sort of German neo-noir by Wim Wenders. And it has, uh, Dennis Hopper and Bruno Ganz and, uh nicholas ray makes a brief appearance in it it's what? uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's weird also yeah. like vim Vendors, that dude yeah also uh sam fuller's in it too uh the director so there's like a few different directors acting in that movie there's also uh a few great directors sort of uh producing this one <laughs> yeah that's really cool it's cool it's always cool to get to something that kind of has you know some like cachet or some talent behind it yeah Mm. yeah you could say that if you wanted to put it in the way that makes it sound a little meaner uh but i guess it is ultimately what i mean um it is fun mr ripley's a talented guy yeah what a legendary talent it's really nice that uh after he did all of this stuff in this movie they he went on to make such an overwhelmingly successful series of like wacky museums That was a- Dude, I literally for most of my life, actually, I thought that this movie was like based on the those books. Like I would <laughs> I would hear the title and that would be the only Ripley I knew. And so I would just think as a kid, that must be a book about uh, that must be a movie about uh, that dude and whether or not I believe it. Yeah, believe it or not. This was him. <laughs> I dig it. And so we have... There's a few people in the crew that I'm actually kind of excited about. There's a yeah. handful that I will say, like, I've never popped harder for an editor credit. Oh, cool. yeah. Oh, and yeah. Pop- and you've I mean, popped for some editor credits. On I, the show. Uh, oh, yeah. I took pretty detailed notes on the, on the crew. Not so much on the cast, but because uh, I yeah, feel like actually, I rhyme that let off. Let me. If, well, I was going to say, I can run through the cast, like, really fast. We don't need to dwell on it too much if we want to dig in the crew a little bit more. Because this is going to be a lot of names people know, right? Yeah, Matt Damon. Everybody knows who Matt Damon is. We don't need to talk about Matt Damon. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jude Law, Kate Blanchett, who I spent the whole movie trying to recognize who that was, and it was driving me absolutely insane. <laughs> uh, and I had to Google it later to have it dawn on me that it was Kate Blanchett. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, Philip Baker Hall, which we were excited about before, and then we've he, got he might be a bit more obscure, Philip Baker Hall. Yeah, but we've talked about him we've enough. Talked about him. I think Se- people know Secret Honor. That's all I'm gonna say. Yeah, and uh, we've, got, we've got Jack Davenport playing uh, Peter, and then for a few of the names that people might not know, we've got James Reborn, Sergio Rubini, Celia Weston, Fiorello. There's a guy who's just named Fiorello. Uh, Stefania Roca, Evano Mariscotti. Anna Longy, Alessandro Fabrici, Lisa Eichhorn, Gretchen Egloff, and then there's a variety of uh, credits for the smaller roles and like the band players and stuff like that. But um, 
who we've got as the director here and the writer is uh, Anthony Minella? Mingala. Mingala. Oh, it's just exactly how it's spelled. Yeah. Interesting. Anthony Mingala. English patient. That's the only one that I know. <laughs> uh, a cold Mountain. Again, also a, like a, a Jude Law vehicle, I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah. It is, yeah. I don't. I haven't seen that movie, but I remember my parents watching it. <laughs> I will say the poster is Jude Law, Nicole Kidman, and Renee Zellweger, which is wild. That's a trio, definitely. That's three people you can put in your movie for sure. And Philip Seymour Hoffman's in that movie. Goated, actually. Everything's Donald Sutherland is in that movie. What the fuck? Jack White is acting in it. Actually, this cast kind of goes insane. Actually. Maybe I, I know that's not what that. we're here to talk about, but this cast is pretty wild. <laughs> Jenna Malone is in it? Sold. Done. Easiest decision of my fucking life. Anyway, um, enough about a movie we're not watching. Uh, do either of you guys have much familiarity with uh, Mr. Mengele's stuff? Or? Not really. I've seen The English Patient only because it's kind of one of those movies that I, it, I think it won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 96. Um, and everybody kind of memes about it because everybody hated it when it came out in those days. Uh, I think it won Best Picture. Let me just verify that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not certain. But while you're verifying that, because he's also the writer, I'm just gonna pass on down. Yeah, it won to... nine awards: Best Picture, Best Actor, or sorry, Best Picture, Best Director, Supporting Actress, whole bunch. Best yeah. editing, yeah. And then our cinematography is from John Seal, who has some pretty fucking gnarly credits, despite like a relatively limited filmography compared to some people that we've talked about. Uh, mm. If you want a recent example, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, that movie looks hard to shoot, and he shot that. Um, shot a few of the other Anthony Mingle movies, as well as... Uh, the Mosquito Coast, which is Peter Weir, right? Yep. Yeah, and um, Dead Poets Society. He also was yeah. a camera operator on Picnic at Hanging Rock, which was also Peter oh, Weir. Let's so, go! I fucking yeah. love that movie, <laughs> dude. If people haven't watched Picnic at Hanging Rock, I've certainly plugged it before, but like, you should do that. Yeah. What are you doing? What are you doing? Wake up. Uh, then we've got in the film editing department. The absolute fucking legend himself, Walter Murch. I am actually most stoked on Walter Murch as like a sound editor and a sound design guy. But well, like on so many films he did both. Like on yeah, so many great films he yeah. I'm most familiar because like I studied his like sound editing in school. Yeah. So like I'm but like dude's got like an unimpeachable list of editing credits, like uh, some fun ones include the touch of evil re-edit from the 90s um, That's right. Godfather Part 3 which uh, we could do someday uh, the Captain EO short from Disneyland where Michael Jackson is in space um, and doing like music videos and stuff uh, but then he's got sound editing as well on like THX 1138 you're, you're neglecting uh, yeah he also edited Apocalypse Now he was yeah. one of the editors on it there were a few yeah. I was getting I there. Sorry. No, it's okay. I just pulled up IMDb. I know you had notes right over there. I was like, oh yeah, IMDb is like a website that you can use. True. 
Who needs but, notes? Yeah, dude, Mozart Rich is awesome. What a talented dude. Truly. And then we've got music by Gabriel Yared, who I am entirely unfamiliar with. Same. Dude's got 131 credits, though. All of us are guinea pigs now? Documentary from 2012. Are any of these sequels? South Africa 2, Sanctuaries for Life. Is that something we could do with a podcast? That's one that kind of pops up with a few of the people involved in this project. Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah, there's a lot of crossover uh, with stuff like that. Oh, it's like a Cousteau thing. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> weird. <laughs> Uh, anyway, yeah, so that kind of wraps it up. A nice, quick, and easy cast and crew thing. Uh, I there's, there's, there's a few more, I think, because like in the in the production design, there's some really exceptional. Deeper? I went okay. deeper. Go off. Also, so also, it's it's worth noting uh, the the producers behind this movie. Your executive producer is Sidney Pollack, um, who is an extraordinary talent. He's known for directing uh, Tootsie with Dustin Hoffman. He's an uncredited director on The Swimmer. I'm just putting that out there because it's one of Corey's favorites. He directed the Yakuza. That was Paul Schrader's first script. It was the highest selling screenplay in Hollywood for a while. Uh, Robert Mitchum is incredible in that movie. But uh, he, yeah, he's done a lot. And then you also have um, another guy uh, by the name of, I forget his first, Sternberg. Uh, what the hell is his name? Whew, I think I copied and pasted not his full name. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> oh, if you Christ. know, you know. If you know, you know. But he, uh, he uh, also produced the talented Mr. Ripley and Lost Highway, also the 2007 Sleuth movie, which we have plugged in this movie. Um, you've got the production design by Roy Walker, who was an art director on Barry Lyndon, uh, a production designer for Eyes Wide Shut, also a production designer for The Killing Fields, The Shining, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Set decorator, you've got Bruno Cesari, who was a set de- decorator for Once Upon a Time in America, The Last Emperor, and The Legend of 1900. Art direction, you've got John Fenner, who is known for, uh, I guess, being an art director on The Phantom of the Opera, 2004. He also did Eyes Wide Shut. He was in the art department for Moonraker. Then you've got Stefano Maria Ortolani, who was an art director for The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, Gangs of New York. So, pretty incredible. That's That's like the rest of the dive that I did, but... That's sick. I, I feel like we could also give a shout out to some particularly inspired work. We've done this handful of times from David Rubin. Yeah. Who is the casting director? Yeah. <laughs> Cause you want to talk about a well cast movie. We've got one in the talented Mr. Ripley. And let me see what else we got here from our boy David Rubin. Uh Men in Black International. We could do that in the show. The Smurfs two. The Smurfs one. <laughs> uh hairspray from two oh charlie bartlett actually goaded movie um do you guys know that movie i feel like we've talked about it on the podcast i'm sure liam knows that oh movie. Uh, the guy whose name i cut off john fenner his first john, name is john. john fenner but anyway uh if i'm gonna plug anything else from david rubin uh charlie bartlett is a cool movie i don't know charlie bartlett i've not um, seen it either it seems like it seems like a, something Liam would like because it, it's a high school movie as well. But um, oh, it stars Anton Yelchin, and he's I'll, at I'll this like, like um, he gets sent to a new high school, and he's basically got a hookup for like some 
some like I'm trying to make sure that I get it right because I haven't watched it in a little while. Yeah, so he's got like a hookup for like prescription drugs and he occasionally becomes like the psychiatrist for the school and he's like giving them out and he's like the guy that's known for that and like he takes a pretty big adjustment from being this like prep school kid that gets sent to a new high school and gets like a culture shock but then gets like thrown into this like whole drug angle robert downey jr is the principal this sounds like a really cool movie i gotta yeah i gotta watch it yeah i think you would like it a lot it's from 2007 which i think is a pretty good sweet spot for this kind of movie sick yeah, I haven't watched it in a while, but I we had it on DVD when I was like a kid, and I definitely watched it multiple times. Looks like a good DVD movie, a hundred percent. Yeah, because they 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 did a bad job. I mean, like just naming your movie a dude's name that it takes a lot of that takes a lot of courage. It might not have paid off for them. Yeah, well, and I don't know how big like Anton Yelchin was in two thousand seven, right? Like, can you really sell it? Yeah, just, like, no, not very poster? big. Yeah, not very big. Um, and even this yeah. would have been like what, like pre-Iron Man, like right before Iron Man. It so even it was Robert Downey Jr., even he couldn't pull it in. Yeah, well, and then Kat Dennings is in it, but I don't know where she was at in 2007 either. Yeah, yeah, not not uh, not massive. Yeah, but anyway, that movie's cool, and I think you would probably like it based on my memory of the movie. Cool. Uh, but we're here to talk about the talented Mister Ripley, so we'll also do that. Um. This movie is about a man named Thomas Ripley, if you can believe it. Tom Ripley is what we'll go with. Um, essentially, he just sort of falls ass backward into a very strange situation because he's playing piano at a party and he borrowed a Princeton jacket. And through an opportunistic case of mistaken identity on his part, he meets herbert greenleaf who's this like really really rich like shipping company owner whose son went to princeton and because he's got the jacket on the dad as like oh do you know my son and he just goes yeah totally <laughs> and tries to like play along and ultimately because dickie greenleaf has been sort of off playing hooky in italy with his girlfriend and his dad wants him to come home he's like okay you knew my son you guys went to school together whatever i'll pay you a thousand dollars plus expenses if you go to Italy and make my son come home. So he gets this bit of culture shock because we see that he's not like the rich sort of preppy kid that he is putting on. So he goes over and he ends up meeting everybody and is originally tasked with, you know, trying to get him home, but sort of falls into this like bougie rich lifestyle and becomes very attached to it. And we also learn that he's good at like impersonating people and that kind of thing. And he gets kind of like, obsessed with dickie in a way and he's also starting to show off his skills for like impersonating people he's watching for like little ticks and behaviors and um there's some intrigue with dickie like having an affair and some issues between him and his like maybe fiance and then tom feels like he's getting rejected by dickie because he says that like he's boring and it's clear that there's some sort of like you know, beyond the obsession, there's like a romantic attachment that Tom is growing to Dickie and it's not there. So in a really heated argument that they have, just to make sure that we get through all this in one piece, uh, Tom murders Dickie with the oar of a boat. It's about an hour into the movie. It's quite a twist. We're, we're spoiling yeah, the that's, movie. That's like 40 minutes into the movie. He murders him outright. And as we know, like he's established that he's good at impersonating people and he's been studying gestures and mannerisms. He's like, 
people are starting to think I'm Dicky. I'm just going to be Dicky. And he starts like living his life while also having to be Tom. So he's like reaching out to people and trying to establish like why Dicky's not around and where he might have gone and why people can't find him. And he's able to like use all of this money that he has around, but he still keeps bumping into people that think he's Dicky or think he's Tom. And he's trying to balance that. Some people start catching on. There's some confusing um, moments with the the landlord, and then Freddie, who is one of Dicky's friends, realizes that Tom is clearly up to something and is like living on Dicky's dime, essentially. And then to cover that angle off, Tom proceeds to uh, beat him to death with a bust and Dickie hide that play the piano. Dicky does not play the piano. And then the police get involved and he's trying to navigate being two people while trying to not get caught. And Dickie's dad comes over to try to get to the bottom of it. He hired a private investigator because the police aren't doing a good enough job. And, you know, Tom just keeps digging himself this murder hole. There's a point where it seems like maybe he's thinking about killing Marge and then can't. She finds evidence that maybe he had more to do with Dickie's death than he's letting on. And then he has to try to navigate that. And then there is uh, a man that Marge had been with named Peter who sort of gets around. You see them kind of develop a burgeoning relationship as well. And it certainly seems like they're very much together by the time they're trying to escape on this boat. But then Meredith is back on this boat uh, because she thinks he's Dickie and then Peter thinks he's Tom. So there's no way that they can sort of narrow that down. So then once they're talking at the end of the movie, uh, he just kills Peter as well. Like it's just this endless cycle of not being to keep up with this like double life that he's taken on. Uh, and then it's just sort of left on a, what will happen from there. It is a very, um, there's a lot of moving parts, a, a very like twisted, twisted plot. That's all about lies and deception. And so it's, it's hard to describe in a way. Cause there's, there's so many different tr- like platitudes of truth <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> yeah. But that's the uh, gist of it. I'm starting to think talented might not be the best word to describe this guy. No, he's very I mean, talented. He's clearly a good murderer. He's done it three times. Well, people I mean, only sus- one person thinks it's him and two other people either think it's him and have chosen to not say anything or genuinely don't think it's him. So Tom is a mystery. Tom is not a nobody. Tom has secrets. He doesn't want to tell me and I wish he would. Tom has nightmares. Not a good thing. <laughs> Tom has someone to love him. That's a good thing. Tom is crushing me. Tom is crushing me. That is such a good fucking scene dude yeah legendary stuff anyway before we get too carried away uh yeah well you know what actually yeah i want to ask liam first i'm I'm so eager to know what What he thinks curveball curveball liam what did you think about the talented mr ripley i thought it and he was awesome Let's I thought go. this I thought this was a great movie. I I I was I was just loving hearing Corey describe it actually and it was just making me think, man, this was a cool movie and I would watch it again right now. I I love stories like this all about someone Corey led with it just falling ass backwards into uh something and then 
things just start piling up and uh, they reveal who they are, but they are also um, st- kind of stumbling into uh, deception and things just get more and more complicated and they're revealing their true selves but their true selves are also it's it's not just like black and white like this is uh at the beginning of the movie before it says the talented mr ripley all these words quickly flash and you can barely catch them but you but you understand what the effect is where it says like secretive and it says troubled and sad and and i i think that is just a great um encapsulation of this this character and part of what this movie is about is just the the depth of people and the depth of people that that do terrible things uh, i have to watch a whole lot of true crime shows at my work and i like watching true crime regardless so i've seen a lot of it but particularly at work like i just every day um and i just keep getting shown that you can never really guess who is going to do something uh, murderous or or lie to you. Um, it, it can it can come from anywhere, and the reasons are always uh, you might not be able to predict them. And then when you hear them, it seems like you know they don't make sense. You're like, why would someone kill someone or lie to someone over that? Mm-hmm. But then if you if you just kind of tweak your perspective a bit, and um, I can. I guess I can understand how someone just gets in over their head and far more people are capable of murder than you would think. And I just really like how this movie gradually reveals that and you end up it's it it gets revealed that you're actually spending this movie with a you know an anti-protagonist you're spending your time with the villain of the movie and that's not clear at the beginning um and so i just really liked being along for the ride of this movie i thought the performances were all great my favorites were um matt damon and my 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 ultimate favorite was philip seymour hoffman yes I think he is so uh, just kind of steals the scenes he's in and he he gives that depth to his character in far less time than Matt Damon is given. I think they're, they're, they both do impeccable work, but I think it's incredible what Philip Seymour Hoffman yeah. is able to do in, in his the entrance, short time he has. His yeah. entrance. Oh God. Don't you just want to fuck everyone you see just <laughs> once? That's his first line. It's just incredible. It's it's awesome. Keep going. Yeah. So this movie, I thought it was just a joy. I um, I thought it was very haunting. I thought the ending was haunting. I I feel it. I I really like the the bleak ending that it has. Um, but it it kind of felt by the time it ended, I could kind of feel like it was a book that like had more stories to be told and uh that kind of left me wanting a bit more and then i'm kind of disappointed to learn that um in this sort of ripley on film franchise that um we we don't get any more matt damon and we don't get any more of these this specific cast because i I just would have spent more time with them so um I thought I thought it was a, a really great movie. I, I would watch it again quickly um, because as as much as I liked it and feel like I got it, 
I, I bet you I missed so much. Um, not just in terms of like the 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 cleverness in the way the plot unravels, but also just the the depth of these characters. You know, I, I picked up on the fact that they had depth, but I'm sure I I missed a whole lot, and so I'm excited to hear what you guys say about it. But I, I thought this was a great movie. I'm so glad because I, I wasn't sure because you don't always gravitate towards like the Hollywood polish, but I knew there was like a dark enough like fucked up psychosexual violence streak and really <laughs> well-written characters and like just like beautiful cinematography that I knew it would probably get you. Yeah, it, it did. I I wasn't sure at the beginning. I wasn't disliking it, but, you know, we got 20 minutes in and I was thinking, man, this is like call me by your name vibes where it's just rich people hanging out in Italy and doing nothing. And it, I saw um, just when I looked up the movie to watch it, I saw that it said psychological thriller and 20 minutes in, I was like, this is just a, this is a romance movie. And it felt that way for another 30 minutes. Um, and I was, I was enjoying it, but I was so curious as to where it was going to go. Um, and I, I, I really liked the way that it went. And if it didn't go that way, maybe, maybe I would have liked it less, but thankfully we don't have to, we don't have to think about that. And, and I do like romance movies as well. So I was really into the uh, interplay of the characters before then anyway. So I was, I was kind of, I was, I ended up being into it basically the entire way through. That's great. Yeah. I guess it makes sense for me to go now. Um, if we want sure i th- yeah i mean you tell me do you want i'm because i, mean, I few, suspect a, that you like it so that's why there's I'm a few not things that liam said it. that i kind of want to talk that i want to touch on but i can wait okay no no, no um, go ahead i'm just glad that he mentioned the opening credits um because it's stylistically so reminiscent of the opening credits that saul bass did if anybody doesn't know saul bass he's a legendary credit designer who did quite a few movies for hitchcock he did north by northwest vertigo psycho um, and the credit sequence looks like it's something that he would have done. And this is such a Hitchcockian film. I mean, even the fact that it's like a shipping magnet who starts it off. I mean, that's so vertigo. Um, I just wanted to, I just wanted to address that because, uh, that's totally where it's coming from. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think you're totally right. And, uh, just to sort of double down on what we've already been saying, I think this movie fucking rules, man. What? Dang. I was kind of hoping you would hate it just because it would be it would be cool and more interesting, more more fun. Yeah, Yeah. but no, that's cool. The second, no, like like you're saying, uh, the "Call Me by Your Name" comparison, I think, is apt. So it's like it had to be anyway, and then it just became a whole other fucking thing. But um, no, I think this is genuinely like pretty exceptional. Um, it's it's interesting because, like you were saying, Liam, it's sort of like a vision of like you know not realizing who might have the capacity to murder i actually read it like slightly differently than that which is like what i think is interesting here is just like seeing a dude who's kind of willing to do anything but he's only in those circumstances by accident like i think the fact that the beginning is such happenstance really elevates what we see from him later on because like right away he's like you you get the sense that he's up to something far before he has to be um uh, because he is you know studying mannerisms and like getting intentional forgeries and of signatures that he can use and like trying to build up this repertoire of stuff so he could at a moment's notice certainly in a place where people might not recognize him off bat 
be Dicky instead. And I think that there's something like initially like fairly sinister about that because again it's very mm. opportunistic it's like i've been put in a position where i can capitalize on this and people are just giving me money and i can go hang out with like the rich and the and the ambivalent and he sees opportunity there and then i think it gets out of his hands but the the murder comes from a real sense of not just like i think i think romance and like attachment but almost like entitlement because he is around so much and i think there's a degree of sympathy that you can have for dicky just being like you're just a dude and you won't leave me alone and i know you've been sent here to do a particular thing but like what the fuck man he also doesn't really have a personality of his own or an identity of his own no he's just he's a chameleon and obviously that Mm. goes a long way and he's very capable but like there's just something about the way matt damon is able to present that very like you know, charming, affable, like nice guy smile, but like he's staring at you in a weird way or it feels a little bit off. You know what I mean? Where it's like, mm-hmm. it he, just seems like a, the he seems like a linger. regular guy, but he's lingering a little bit too long and he's looking a little bit too deeply and he just seems off. And, and it's be, it's that lack of ability that to like interact with other people or connect with other people that is forcing him to sort of rely on his ability to become other people instead. And I think that's really compelling. And I think the camera really kind of communicates well, like the difficulty that he's having with that intimacy. And I was surprised and kind of pleasantly surprised that the, the homoeroticism undercurrent kind of becomes text in the movie. I wasn't sure if it was going to be text or subtext, but they come right out with it. And I think that's just a fascinating additional angle to have like having a psychosexual aspect beyond just sort of like what could be interpreted as a greed aspect or an opportunistic aspect. Like there's a degree of genuine like want for intimacy there, but it's just not being met. And I think that every performance sort of meets this movie like where it needs to be. And I think the camera work does a good job communicating a lot and the locations are great. And it's got this like golden hue throughout all of it. That's just very like, evocative and there's just a lot kind of there's so much here and i think the script really does a good job like we're saying sort of communicating a lot of those Mm. nuances to it and then like every supporting character is just like absolutely pitch perfect man it's good stuff yeah yeah no i mean it's it should come as no surprise to all of you that i fucking love this movie yeah Uh, (laughs) um (laughs) And I love it for so many different reasons. I mean, I don't think that there's anything really accidental about the circumstances that, in my read anyway, and in where Ripley is. I think it, it all feels very uh, like he knew, like if I played piano here, these people would be here. Perhaps he didn't have it like like by the motions, dialed, but we yeah. we know nothing of his past. The book, the books never really elaborate on on it that much, and that's deliberate. Um, and he's, but he's not as, uh, sophisticated as, as like a con man as he is in the later films. And he's not as cold blooded and, uh, just like ruthless as he is in the other films. He's, he's still kind of like figuring himself out. His con is, is imperfect. He's, he's still learning. And yeah, so his he character keeps backing himself into situations where he can't get out of them. Yeah. Like on a ship with, and then he has to make like a fatal, fatal choice. And so 
this movie is about so many different things. It's about like the failures of memory, you know. I mean, Jude Law says on the beach, Princeton is like a fog, America is like a fog, and Ripley loves taking advantages of people's unreliable memory. It's about it's about like cl- class divides in so many different ways. And again, you, t- you also touched on the psychosexual element. It feels a lot like a Harold Pinter play. I said that before, like, like the servant or something. Um, just for so many of those of the of the sheer precision of of the dialogue and of the of the plot points, I love the bright Italian vistas, reminiscent of like all the great twentieth century Italian films, like uh, Amarcord by Fellini or uh, Journey to Italy, Rossellini. Um, it's got like these these great sort of Amalfi Coast locations that just kind of pop, and it goes to Venice. It's it's just a delight for the eyes. Um, I think the characters are are so complex uh and just with the way that they that they that they kind of jump back and forth and and nobody really trusts anyone and i think the the female characters are especially tragic in this movie um yeah being like totally just used yeah (laughs) yeah especially like meredith or um Marge, Marge, I think Silvana, even like that's sort of a very like we don't see a lot of that, but like as background context, it's pretty damning stuff. I think the time that I watched this movie, the movie this time, I've seen it several times. I wasn't rooting for Ripley as much as I was the first time I saw it. Um, The first time I saw it, I almost kind of wanted him to get away with it because he's he's so slick, he's so good at navigating his way out of impossible situations that you almost feel like he's earned it, even though he's the architect of all the disaster. He's a truly a volatile individual because after a point, the enormity of his lies becomes so much that he just has to destroy people to preserve himself. Um, so it's it's so good. I love like the police procedural sort of elements. Oh, that's um, sick, yeah. I love the the violence in this movie. It's so ab- abrupt and startling. I think the boat scene that you touched on earlier is a masterclass. Um, yeah. Like, do you want to play the sax or do you want to play the drums? Which is it? And in, in the scene before, you know, um, Tom is like, I love the way you live. It's, it's uh, you know, my our own... It's like my own love affair with you. And he, he really opens up to Dickie. Dickie gets up without even listening. Is like, you know, I think I want to take up the sacks. It's 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 funny, but it's tragic. And uh, then the, the following confrontation where he kills him is just astonishing. Um, well, and str- then Go ahead. The thing that I love in that is that I think I had said this to you, but like the the violence of it is very unexpected, like how direct it is. Like it is a gory wound that yeah. like he, he gets, almost seems surprised by it too like yeah he's, i think he's stunned for a moment and then it, it just does a great job communicating head. that we've seen him take a step that he can't go back on because it does feel like it's coming out of nowhere and at first it looks minor like it looks like something you could solve and then it just starts like gushing and like splitting open and his, and his eyes bulging at the side of his head while he tries to kill him in this in this baking boat and then yeah. after he after he kills him, like he he lies with him in in the bed of the boat, and there's like this sort of, sort of like osmosis where he's almost like absorbing his identity. It's it's really yeah. interesting, and also again ties into that weird psychosexual element where he, you know, he he wants to like steal their identities so he can, I don't know, feel better about himself. Or I'm not really sure what it is, but it's it's uh, one hell of a thing. Yeah, it's 
it's so evocative. And then just to touch on the violence again quickly, but like when he kills Freddy as well, like just yeah. bludgeoning him with a fucking bust. Like, and again, it's so suddenly violent. Even though we've seen it once, you're like, oh, we're doing okay, we're back. Okay, fuck. Like, um, it makes it feel very like direct and, and immediate. Yeah. Um, and and that sort of confrontation scene where he he goes in and he's like you know, Dickie's not at dinner at 6 p.m. If you said lunch, maybe I'd believe you. And then he starts playing the piano and interrupting Matt Damon while he's trying to give the answers and yeah. rolling his eyes. It feels improvised. And then he's like, she did not decorate this place. It doesn't look like him. In fact, the only thing that looks like looks Dickie like is you. you. Fuck, that line is so good. And then he's like, either he converted to Christianity or there's something else. And he keeps plotting and trying to unravel what's going on. And then the landlady gives it away. It's such a tense scene. That scene is fucking awesome. And I think something that's so great about that is I think so, another thing that's giving him away in that scene is so it goes along with a line that Meredith says later. I don't have the exact phrasing of it written down, but she says something to the effect of like, if you've had money your entire life, you're only truly comfortable around other people who have had it. And yeah. she also includes a line about like despising having had it. But I think what's, great about that scene with Freddie too is that he's giving himself away because there's like expensive nice things in there and he cares about their maintenance in mm-hmm. a way that none of them ever have like he's like don't touch the piano because it's new and like if you just hit random keys you're gonna fuck it up yeah like that's like he's not even worried about explaining what happened anymore he's like hey don't fuck with my piano please like don't fuck with my big bust of a guy please like he's too preoccupied with maintaining the kinds of things that he hasn't had before and that's giving him away as well yeah it's kind of that that thing i was talking about with the element of class and the class divide that's there that ties into the idea we see his shitty new york apartment and and when jude law finally like chews out uh ripley in the boat um and he's like he calls him uh, low class and boring yeah, he says, "Oh, well, in the in the boat, like when they're when they're just hanging out, he's like, oh, oh you know, right. you're unable to ski. You're so low class.' And then finally, when right. he says he, he can't go, he's like, well, you can't pay your own way, Tom.' Uh, da 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 da. And then finally, in the scene where he actually, um, you know, where where, where there's the killing, uh, then he really kind of chews into him. And also, like Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is like a corduroy jacket in Italy. I don't believe it. Um, you've just got." these constant quips against him. And and I don't know if he's necessarily motivated completely by greed, but I think glee, greed and class and privilege and the idea of the Greenleaf name opening doors is very appealing to him. He wants to be Dickie Greenleaf. Yeah, it, it it's a hilarious encapsulation of the queer crisis you might have where you're like, do I want to be with that person or do I want to be that person? And for Tom Ripley, the answer is both. <laughs> yeah. Um, Definitely. there's so much to touch on. And then the thing that like we, we sort of left is like all through this, like the, the women in the movie, both Meredith and Marge are great examples. It's like, they're just being put through their fucking paces. Like they're just, they're constantly uncertain of if the men in their lives genuinely care for them or are interested or are lying to them. And they're just being kept on this this outside edge and i think what's really interesting about that is what ultimately happens by the end i know we're jumping around a bit but like marge is the one who can most clearly see what's gone on here yeah yeah she had the best sense of dicky and has been able to intuit 
correctly that Tom has ultimately been responsible. And there's certainly a boys club feel to the decision from the dad and the private detective to just like act like nothing has happened here. Definitely. But even beyond that, I think there's, there's just something to be said for part of that ability to see through it is because the priorities that the women are shown to have versus the ones that the men are shown to have are different. Like Dickie just wants to like fuck around and party and like do whatever. And he's like knocking up random people and like uh, Marge is interested in like settling down and like potentially seeing something else there. And then to get that outside perspective on his sort of raucous behavior kind of gives an effective window into seeing the ways in which Tom might or might not kind of fit into that. And I think it gives her a more effective window into seeing that he's full of shit because he's almost like too, too aware, too committed, too on top of like accounting for feelings. And it might be kind of grim to say, but like there's a level of that, which really doesn't work. And then when, Mm -hmm. you know, he's, confessing a love for her as well with a screw with a razor blade in his hands yeah like it just you start to see the the cracks in that he's trying to play both sides to T- such tell an people what they that, want to hear yeah or, that he's or, not believable in that the fact that the the women around him are so used to men being full of shit that the fact that he's trying not to appear that way makes it even clearer that he is if that makes sense like yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I'm glad we kind of touched on, on you know, the relationships that he has with, with women in, in this movie. But he uses everyone and he tells everyone what they want to hear. But I think especially so with, with uh, the women, particularly Meredith. Um, yeah, Meredith in, is being taken for a fucking yeah, ride. In, like, in, in one case, you know, I think he almost just uses her just to establish an alibi, right? Like he goes to the opera with her because he knows that she's influential. And if he's pretending to be Dickie, then people are going to find out about it. They're going to think that he's okay. And then he meets uh, Marge the, like the following night and he makes them meet together at a cafe. Why? Like only to sort of like, and then they suspect that, that which is yeah. crazy. I know that they don't think it's Tom, but the fact that they can intuit, like, do they want us to meet here without him? Like, yeah. the fact that they're so close to being right is yeah. wild. Well, and, and it does, in a way, almost seem like something that Dickie might do because he really is a v- dislikable character. He's uh, he's the most likable piece of shit. <laughs> he yeah. sucks, but he's like Jude Law just makes him so fucking fun. I mean, he's responsible for the for the death of of like a woman, and then when you know she kills herself, he doesn't like blame himself he blames the like i guess like the italian people for their culture and he says i thought this land was supposed to be civilized it's not you know it's yeah and he He takes more of the blame later but initially he just like oh well this can't be my problem and and you know i think tom kind of like he notices that and he uses it later during the interrogation scene that he's got this kind of uh prejudice to him as well like where he's like yes he tells the detective your english is a little coarse i'm not in the habit of keeping photographs of my male friends right um i bet you are tom he absolutely is but uh (laughs) you know he he tells people what they want to hear or what they don't want to hear to get out of situations liam we haven't heard from you in a while yeah we're just we're just gabbing what do you got well i love the gab you guys are just making me like this movie even more than i already do i think 
there are so many complexities that can be gathered from like a simple a simple story like when you actually look at the story close there's a whole lot going on of how he's tricking all these people and how he's um falling into so many deceptions and stuff but really the story is is pretty simple it's this guy who uh is paid to go pick up someone who's about his own age he kills that dude and then he pretends to be him like that's the movie but there's there's actually so much to it and so many people are getting the run around and i think every person in this movie feels so real um and i really at every turn whenever we were introduced to a new um to to two characters interacting with each other i felt like that was where the heart of the movie was and it just kept changing like i I thought that every single relationship was so deep you know at the beginning i thought that this whole movie was going to be tom and dickie i didn't know that dickie was going to get killed um and i loved that idea of uh um Tom is just looking up to this dude so much and and it's that idea of uh when you like someone more than they like you you know and you you got to realize that 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 they matter more to you than you do to them is a terrible feeling and uh for that to be the the impetus for how he um ends up deciding to to strike Dickie he doesn't even decide to kill him really he hits him and he's horrified and uh he seems apologetic at first you know and then uh of course Dickie kind of tries to fight back and then Tom you know in the heat of the moment uh realizes that he's got a he's got to follow through with it and he, and he kills Dickie um and so now with Dickie gone I'm thinking oh this story is uh maybe this movie isn't just about their interaction. And then he ends up hanging out with Meredith for a while. And I think back to how he introduced himself to Meredith as Dickie. And I was like, Oh shit, maybe this movie is actually about him and Meredith. Cause he was, he was, I guess, planning it all along. He introduced himself as Dickie from the beginning. And, uh, and then she kind of fades away and he ends up spending more time with Marge and then, and then she's gone and he spends, uh, you know, we got the, the great Freddy scene, which might be my favorite scene in the movie. And then we've got Peter at the end who he's spending time with. And so I just think it, it speaks to the, uh, the adeptness of all the actors and, um, and the pacing and the writing of this movie that, really at every turn this movie feels like it is full of meaning and uh full of real people and so it's just a it's kind of a joy to spend time with and i can i can um i can guess that if i were to rewatch it again you know i'd i'd feel differently every time about these characters i think it's really cool that mitch said that he liked tom ripley more the first time he saw it and now that you've seen it more you know your opinions change a bit and i think the exact same thing would happen to me it's just such a deep movie yeah like he once you kind of know where he's going um and you kind of know that he's a snake and you and you kind of watch these robotic mannerisms right from the start i think you you trust him a lot less and so rightfully so you know where it's going so you you pick up on all these other sort of nuances earlier on um yeah but i i really like that you said that the characters are, are all believable because everybody kind of knows people like this to a degree or they've had relationships with people like this like when uh 
when um, Marge is is describing um, uh, Dickie and and she's like, uh, what what does she say? The thing with Dickie is is that the sun sh- when he's when he's with you the sun shines on you it's glorious and then yeah. he forgets you and it's very very cold it's always the same when anyone new comes into his life and then she names a bunch of people and that's just the boys and it's it, everybody kind of knows someone that that's like that to a degree you've been friends with someone like that who who kind of loses focus in you and you want to be a better you want to be closer with them but then they kind of forget about you you know i mean there's 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 so many uh, characters that you can kind of relate to. Uh, and there is a, a sense of yearning, I think, in in Ripley that is uh, relatable in a lot of different ways. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. And yeah. like it's the yearning not just for like not just for wealth or or connection or but mm. just like feeling like he's worth something. like at the yeah. end, when he's talking to Peter and he's like, I thought, cause he starts just admitting everything in sort of roundabout language mm-hmm. by the end. And he's sort of saying like, I thought it would be better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. Yeah. And you see that play out the whole time. And that's what makes it, that's what's so fascinating about watching his commitment to establishing that, throughout the movie i wish my notes were a little better on this they're letting me down somewhat but like the way that the movie communicates throughout the process that he is so committed to this idea and like the camera i find would get very close on him or on his eyes when he's studying like a new technique i guess for like how he can take over this kind of persona and there's something in that really like because it's it's a kind of camera work that's both like it's intimate but it's really claustrophobic and it's kind of off-putting and it's sort Mm. of at odds with like the the breadth and the in the scale of not just like the the people and their personalities but also just like the locations and just italy itself and there's this really weird tug of war happening between those things and then just knowing that he's just he's doing this not just for you know romance or money but like a baseline sense of fulfillment and it gets so out of hand that yeah, self-worth is, yeah like he's just like it's a it's a seeking of confidence mm-hmm. as well as anything else um yeah and you see it in weird moments like when uh dickie and freddie are in that like vinyl listening booth getting down to some jazz yeah, and like he's just standing on the opposite side of the store, like staring at them, and then on, on the other side Dick, of the glass. Yeah, yeah, and Dickie's like, "Man, like you said, you wanted to go like sightsee. Like you can go. It's cool. Like we'll meet you later. It's okay." And he's like, oh, "I thought we were gonna like do this stuff," and just like so much of the the yearning and desire, both like physically and emotionally is just encapsulated in him like doing that like sad puppy dog stare from across the record store. Yeah, and they're they're on the other side of the glass and they're having fun. I think or or when he finds out he that he can't go skiing, right? I think everybody knows what it's like to be like the odd man out in a group of, of friends in a way or or to feel like the the friend who nobody really wants to be there. I think like when I was younger I, I felt that a bit. Um but and it's it's like a very relatable feeling. I mean, even if it's not true, it's it's something that you know you're. Everybody feels like that, everybody feels like they point. might be that at some point, right? And uh, you know, I, I think also what's interesting is like when that sort of his fragile 
sense of self comes into into question uh it's often followed with a murder um like uh yeah for the for like the the scene in the boat where where uh you know uh tom really goes off on dicky and he's like you know uh and particularly with the marge problem you know i'm relieved you're i'm so he he kind of like un- unpacks all, all these things and then you know Dickie tells him that he's relieved he's going you can be a leech you're boring and then the you know they quarrel a bit more and then uh you know he calls him a third a third class loser who are you and then yeah then he kills him or the same thing with uh, with philip seymour hoffman there's there is this uh when his sense of self is challenged even if it's yeah. a sense of self he's created through murder um yeah it or, often leads to another one when other people sense that he doesn't actually really have one yes or if it, he's it, like if, it catches him very flat foot and he's like oh like people have caught like have found me out basically like people have recognized that i'm putting on a show and yeah i don't think he can stand to live with that mm. um because you even see it with like anytime he has to like code switch very quickly like when he's with Marge, when he bumps example. into yeah but or like when he bumps into Marge and peter at the opera mm. and they're like oh like what are you doing here is dicky here like what happened to all your plans like what's this and he's like didn't like they're like don't you wear glasses like and they're just I'm like hey man like none of this checks out and he's just like the uh, fuck like and you can yeah. see it like in his expressions and manners and how he's like oh fuck like the, i'm the sure vanity. if he could have killed them in the room i'm sure he would have there's there's an element of like you know the vanity in, in his own planning when it when it kind of falls apart and he doesn't have a contingency and you know the the algorithm is is thrown off he doesn't really know what to do and and somehow he still manages to do it even if it's like he's falling down the stairs while he does it but he sticks the landing somehow yeah it is that and that's the thing that's charming about it that's the thing that sort of wins you over to his side is that he keeps succeeding and because he always lands he, on his feet he's like yeah, a cat like, you do on your first viewing even though i recognize that he's a real piece of shit it's like you do kind of want him to win yeah like at least for a lot of the movie i think by the end you kind of don't i think he well, sort of lost a lot of the sympathy but I think he, in a way, like the ending is so sad. Like he, the enormity of his of his lies becomes so large that he has to he has to kill someone that he very well might love, uh, just to or kind that of preserve actually it. Actually, cares going. about him. I think is the biggest Which thing. Which is there, rare because like, nobody really cares about him in this movie. Or, or no, he's he's just or around. If they do, if they do, like his actions sort of. Uh, make them not like him because he's a real piece of shit yeah well because like you see at the be yeah like marge no, for example is sympathetic in him in in the in early the opening, on and she's, she's very like, compassionate hey, and she likes him. what's up and then yeah. by the end it's like you fucking i fucking hate you man like get the fuck out of here um mm-hmm. one thing i want to touch on quick just because we haven't had much of a chance yet but we've talked about him a few times uh all the performances are great but jude law is like in another dimension He's really good. I think he's he was so nominated good. for an Academy Award for this one. I, Deserved. It, he won the BAFTA for it. Okay. For Best Supporting. Yeah, he was nommed. The, this had five noms, but it didn't win any of them, which I think is an oversight. A hundred percent. But like, there's something... like You understand what Tom's attachment to Dickie is very quickly, because despite the fact that he's kind of an asshole, like, he is such a charming affable 
laissez-faire presence and the way that Jude Law sells it is so good. Yeah. It's insane, man. Like I don't even like I'm not an actor. I can't speak to the to the nuances, but all I can say is like he's just so good. Mm-hmm. I was blown away when I because when I watched the movie, I ended up having to watch it in two halves, and the first half is essentially the Jude Law half, and I was like in awe of of how great he was. Also, an all time great uh, introduction for a Philip Seymour Hoffman character. But anyway, you were gonna say something about Jude Law. Honestly, I could I could go on about about Philip Seymour Hoffman too. I feel like he's always been kind of recognized as a master of improv, and a lot of his stuff feels imp- improvised here. He's such an organic performer, um, especially like during that interrogation scene. I was sad when oh he died. God. Like that he, scene is so good. He might be the most dislikable character in this movie um, because he's I, I the think- biggest asshole, but he also sees through the bullshit most easily as well. Yeah. Because, like, he is, like you said, he's an asshole, so he, he can see through it. It's it's hilarious, like, how when, in the end, like, Philip Baker Hall doesn't see through any of it. Um, or, I, I can't tell if they're not seeing through it or they're choosing not to. That's the only thing that I'm the jury is still out on for me. I think it's a mixture of both because they, they definitely choose to to ignore a few things like my employer mr greenleaf has asked me to lose these in the canal this evening right like yeah that's- like they've certainly come to that they've come to the conclusion that they're not going to act on it but i can't tell if they earnestly believe that he's not involved or they're choosing to act as though he's not involved yeah i'm still not sure i think it gives more credence to to the arc that marge takes if they're choosing to not be involved because it sort of vindicates her even further. Because then her, when the dad is talking about like, well, sometimes men just talk about shit when their sweethearts aren't around. And I feel like it would it would like double down on that idea of them just being able to be like, look, we're going to wash our hands of this and pay him to never talk about it again. It does feel a bit like hush money. But I think on the other hand, it also does feel like I think a uh, like it also feels kind of earnest at the same time that they, they should it's it's. It feels very transactional, but it also feels uh, like there is like an element of goodwill. I think, especially between the uh, dad, really believes seeing, that he's a. Good I think dude. the dad does genuinely believe, and I think that the the PI is not really as much of a PI as he is a spin man. Where I think he tells him what he wants to hear. Right. Yeah, Philip Baker Hall doesn't really seem to me like the most interrogative of, of PIs. I think he. No. What's he, the line? It's like I don't the bullshit line oh oh, yeah he says uh what does he say uh i don't care for bs i don't care to speak it i don't care to hear it that's what i thought that was the point in the movie where i thought like philip bigger was about to blow this whole thing wide open and then he just sort of like chooses not to yeah (laughs) he he lays it down so neatly on this venetian balcony but he couldn't be more wrong yeah like you like it's it's like watching somebody think they've like like they're trying to build Ikea and they think they finally got it right. And then yeah. they try to stand it up and it just falls over. And, and then, uh, you know, at the, at the end, Marge is like, I know it was you. And she's screaming at him while they, they pull it on the taxi. It's, it's so heartbreaking. I would love, I would like Liam said, I would love to see these characters kind of come back, but we should do oh, another ass. Ripley movie. Honestly, I'd be down. There's, yeah. there's some really good ones. Also, I realized that I never actually said what the, the first movie of the, was, uh, in this saga that, that this is like a remake of in a way purple noon with Alain Delon. We never even talked about it. I like Delon, <laughs> the, the legend, but uh, yeah, I won't get into that too much other than I will say that it has a different 
ending that was modified so that Ripley doesn't get away. Oh, he doesn't succeed in that? No, he doesn't succeed. Interesting. Patricia Highsmith hated it. Yeah, I, I mean, she wrote like four more books. I imagine she might have. I yeah. will say on the Wikipedia page, they're in the reception category. There's something I find very interesting. It is from a reviewer named James Berardinelli, mm-hmm. who gave it a two and a half out of four, uh, but criticized Matt Damon's performance as being weak. And in fact, says Matt Damon might make a credible Tom Ripley, but only for those who have never experienced Alain Delon's portrayal. I don't agree. I think that that Alain Delon is. Uh, I don't think he comes close. Matt um, Damon is like this is the greatest performance I've ever seen Matt Damon give. I agree. I I don't think that Alain Delon is anywhere near um, Matt Damon in this movie. Matt uh, Damon also does a lot of movies like uh, the Born Identity movies are weirdly relevant to this. Yeah, like Matt Damon loves playing a guy who doesn't know who he is. Yeah, and is trying to find out. <laughs> no, I think the Alain Delon movie in Purple Noon. It feels a lot like every other Alain Delon movie I've ever seen, which is just sort of brooding and handsome and a bit mischievous. Um, uh, again, if you've seen like Le Cercle Rouge or The Samurai or uh, those kind of crime movies where he's he's sort of uh, a man of not too many words. Uh, of course, Hickey does obviously have to spin a decent yarn, but it's nowhere uh, near this movie. And also it, it starts... Uh, when they're already friends in in Italy, like he's already made Dickie's acquaintance, so it doesn't have oh, okay. all that that build up, which I think is a detriment. I think the build up is really important. It's important, and it's all throughout the credit sequence too, which is great. Um, what else is I? Gonna I could say? gush about it forever, but what about Liam? I know that Liam's just listening; he's just vibing. But yeah, I, I, I want to make more sure from that you, man. Come on, we're getting your input buddy boy <laughs> well i would i'm very curious to see other movies and see how they handle this material because this seems like the kind of story that um would have i would i would i would have trouble uh being as into it if it didn't play out the way it did so i'm, I'm wondering if these other movies are all um a reset not just in cast but also in uh the audience's knowledge like 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 does ripley's game with john malkovich do we know he's a killer right at the beginning oh yes yes um by that point he's like quite established like he's almost like a like a he's incredibly wealthy he's like a crime uh magnet like he's he's huge uh and he's far more ruthless and but he still like ensnares himself with with ordinary people who have r- genuine problems and are and are flawed, but um, and he kind of creeps his way into people's lives and completely destabilizes them, much like he does in this movie, right? Where he is the architect of most of the problems, if not all of them. I would be so curious to see how that plays out. Because you should I think. Well, what I loved about this one is how um, Tom Ripley is is really this everyman who uh, um, just ends up getting twisted in in some in some directions and and makes uh, yeah. bad decisions. But I I didn't get the impression that that you know he was destined to live this life and and mm-hmm. even even though he gets away with it at the end, um, 
technically, you know, he doesn't win. He's defeated at the end. And I I kind of imagined that once this movie ends, um, I, I imagine that he he doesn't carry on for much longer. I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, this was the last kill that, that he gets to do before he gets caught um, or that he's not not as determined to keep going anymore or whatever it is, you know? So to think of him in, uh, in the actual timeline becoming this, uh, sort of notorious calculated, very successful killer that that's not as interesting to me, um, in, in premise, but maybe it would work out when I saw it. I just think that this movie is like a perfect slice of time. And I would, uh, I, I would be, um, very curious to see how it how it extends out even though it's not going to be the same actor i really yeah, want to see more of them john malkovich's ripley is uh a bit more uh unhinged like a bit more kooky uh, a bit more unbalanced he's not as sort i think of, that leans into john malkovich yeah he's not thing. as like plotting and deliberate and uh or naive too like there is an element to yeah. matt damon's that's like a little bit like he knows what he's doing but at times it seems like he doesn't really. recognize the extent of what he's doing like there's kind of a, a sense of beginner's luck at, at in play. short-sightedness yeah that, that kind of comes with youth in in the other one he is much more uh he's much bigger he's much more experienced he's he's holding so many strings and he's so good at what he does that he he almost plays games with people like a cat might do with a mouse before it kills it right like he's uh he's um a much more psychotic character <laughs> i recommend uh ripley's game and uh, immensely especially by uh liliana cavani uh and I think, Liam, you should probably check out some of her other w- films because you're a big exploitation guy. Sick. Yeah, I'm, yeah I'm Liam loves to exploit people. He loves exploitation movies, I mean. <laughs> no, yeah. I know. Yeah. Um, one thing we haven't talked about it yet, just a scene that I love that I want to make sure that we get to, is that when uh, they're playing chess and Jude Law's in the bath. And oh, yeah. First of all, the way the camera shows that Matt Damon is both playing chess and just inspecting the way that he moves his hands and maybe just turned on by his hands, great. There's no establishing shot. It's all just close-ups on movements and glances and hands. And then just like the, like, let me in the bath. Or like, can I get in the bath? And he's like, yeah, not with, no, not with you in it, obviously. LMAO. But, but if. Yeah, I was, I was just, (laughs) I was just joking. I was hacked. But if you wanted me to get in, I would. Yeah. Like, we don't, you can get out if you want. But if you don't want to, that's okay. Th- that was the scene I realized that the the homoeroticism was not going to just be subtext because I, I was yeah, thinking no, the same the thing, thing as you, Corey. Yeah, I I think I wrote a note about it that I I thought I had written a note about it that made it funny, but I must have just thought it in my brain and not written it down. But I was like, wow, they're like going for it. Uh, there's mm. and also just like everybody in this movie is like hot, so there's this like element too of just like i guess sort of like the call me by your name element where you've just got a bunch of like hot people roaming around italy doing some like gay adjacent behavior intentionally or unintentionally <laughs> love that i do have a note that just says like jude law is hot that's like, that was that's all it says what what else do you need me to say i will say a something that i thought home? was a little <laughs> daddy yeah <laughs> sorry but um 
a really interesting note in the Wikipedia page. Uh, I just thought this was really bizarre. So Matt Damon lost 30 pounds in order to play the piano for the role. And I'm like, that makes sense. Matt Damon's looking pretty cut. Maybe he didn't know to play the piano before. Jude Law had to gain weight for this role, and he's like the smallest dude. <laughs> and the note says he gained weight for the role. I guess I mean he has some muscle on him, so maybe he didn't he didn't have that beforehand. Yeah. Also, he, uh, when dude. he when he fell in the boat, he broke his rib. Damn! Damn! Like in the I didn't know that. Scene, he broke a rib falling backwards into the boat. I wonder if if any of the scene was shot with him with a broken rib. It must have or, been right. I don't know. Like maybe you, he you fell lived through a broken rib. Pretty like. Yeah, I've been there. Oh, but I see what you're saying. Like, maybe he fell and was immediately like, hey, st- everybody stop. Yeah, and then they filmed the rest later, maybe. You broke a rib while almost getting murdered in a boat, Mitch? No, I broke a rib when I was a kid, though. Dang. Was anybody getting like? murdered at the time? Uh, it's Somewhere it's, in the world, I bet. <laughs> it's not very good. You can't do anything about it, right? Like, you just got a deal? Yeah, like, I, I didn't even... I don't even think I, like... I went to like a hospital like later like for a checkup and they were like yeah you probably did this but like even if you like because I I, I, I didn't did. I didn't go to the hospital at the time I was actually camping when it happened and um, like even if they did there would have been nothing they could have done for me right so uh, they were like it looks like you did but you're fine so it is weird that there's stuff we can break that they just can't do shit about yeah like you think we would you would figure that out by now yeah you right. just gotta let your bones just figure it out themselves Cold. that is wild into the bone zone i feel like such a wuss for never having broken bone broken a bone before. i haven't either i feel like that means like we play it way too safe Corey. i i mean knowing who i am as a person i'm liable to believe that's probably true i've spent a lot of my life playing things extremely safe i'm getting away from that a little bit but uh evidently not into bone breaking territory and i'm i'm increasingly like I don't want to break a bone for the first time when I'm like 30. Like my want to break a bone years are running out, if not over. So I think in, when you're like a kid, there's you like a weird do it thing for attention. Like, yeah. For attention, like Thomas Ripley, or like you see somebody with a cast and you're like, that's fucking cool. What's yeah. that like? Maybe I um, miss a bit of school. Yeah. But no, now that I'm 25, don't really want to be doing it now. Certainly don't want to break a bone when I'm like 40. Yeah. And that's I've heard that's kind of when it sneaks up on you, like a, you break a bone getting out of bed or something. Yeah, because your body just gets like old and shitty. Old and shitty. Yeah. Synonymous terms. I'm going to show a new movie, Shitty. Honestly, not a bad descriptor for that movie. You didn't love opinion. it? I did not. I thought I would, dude, because it does I, seem uh, like a Liam Leonard original. Yeah, I, I was stoked to watch it. Um, and uh, I like I've I've grown to like a lot of his more cheesy movies, like The Visit. I like I like Split. Um, but old Splits? I thought was. Are we gonna talk about Splits again? That's a whole separate podcast, Corey. <laughs> the Splits cast. Yeah, uh, I wasn't we need a fan to get, of old. We need to get Mitch to watch Splits. If we could find it, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I'm know never gonna let do. this go for the rest of our lives. I mean, it is it is pluralized, so maybe you could just argue that it's a it's a sequel, sequel to, to a, Split. Yeah, <laughs> to a much less seen movie called Split. God, what a fucking weird movie, huh? Well, what do we think? Uh, I'm sure there's more things we can say. I'm sure there is, but it's one of those things. I feel like this happens when we watch something really good, where we're just like, yeah, it's good. What else do you want? 
Yeah, I love the scene where he gets rid of the body. Which body? Dickie's, uh, not Dickie's body. Um, well, I mean, he gets rid of a few Freddy's bodies. Body Fre- and he's Freddy's like pretending Freddy's that he's body, drunk. where he pretends he's drunk, and then he does a good Freddy impression, where he's like, you know, where he uh, he impersonates like Freddy as well, where he's like, hey, if I'm drunk, what the husband's saying is like, he says something like that. <laughs> I don't even know what he says because he's trying to be drunk, but yeah, God, what a movie! Yeah, good flick. What a movie. I loved those those few shots in the third act where it's uh, just visually like a depiction of his um, mul- his his you know multiple identities that he is assuming. Like mm-hmm. there's one where he's uh, reflected in the surface of a piano, and yeah. and as the the piano lid, I guess, is is moving. It's you know morphing his face. It's this sort of effect that we we've all noticed before that reflections can make your face look kind of wonky. But this is just like such a such a um, a cool use of that. His face yeah. morphs and it starts to distort as it's as it's uh, um, growing in the reflection, and then his face splits into two reflections. Um, and then he puts on his glasses, and it's it's just really cool. And they do that again in the last scene. Uh, he's kind of yeah, reflected the as he's sitting alone. Closing shots are unreal. Yeah, and I they're know. a throwback to the opening as well. I love the use of mirrors. I'm so glad and reflections. I'm so glad you touched on that. Like in the bathtub scene, for example, how like their reflections are are in like the bath water and kind of like cut cuts back and forth through that. Or there's the scene where. Um, Tom is riding a moped through the streets and he passes through, through like this street selling just glass and he thinks he sees Dickie like in the mirror and he falls off his moped or or the scene where he dresses in Dickie's tuxedo and he's wearing underpants and some like leopard print hat and I don't know who he's singing um but he's singing and dancing in his in his opera pumps and then he comes home and gets really uh Dickie comes home and gets really mad at him right there's the the use of wearing other characters' clothes and also seeing yourself reflected in a mirror, I think, is is yeah. great. Mirrors are so well, cinematic. And then that line of just like the only thing that looks like Dicky here is you it's really you. Like, puts that home. Yeah, you know, you wear his clothes, you eat his food, his, you take his dad's money, you live in his house. If you ever get bored, let me know. Yeah, that's uh, that's a Freddie line. Yeah. There's a little video clip going around right now. It's it's an excerpt from the interview show Hot Ones. Oh sure. Um, that Matt Damon was on recently, I guess. Mm. And it's like a minute and a half long clip where Matt Damon is talking about what it means when people say that they don't make movies like they used to anymore. And um, his point was that back in in the '90s and um, early 2000s dvd sales could be counted on to uh go into a film's um uh gross revenue you know you you have you put out your movie theatrically and then it's given a second life on dvd and you can make uh you know even more money than it might have made theatrically could just keep coming in and so people so big production companies could afford to to make these movies that aren't necessarily um as marketable as as a blockbuster, um, but they could still get big names behind them because uh, they could then get out on DVD and, and have a second life that way. And I I saw that clip uh, sometime before I watched this movie, and then I, I was thinking about it while I was watching this, and I was just thinking, man, that's 
it's it's really nice to have a big movie like this where you can feel that it had it had a budget um it had a lot of time was was able to be allowed where they could really think about the script and the shots and stuff you got big name actors here um but it's the kind of thing that nowadays you you very uh it'd be very rare to see mm-hmm. a movie that is this solemn and um just like plain on the surface in the theater um and so it was it was really nice to see a movie like this that that felt that way i'm not even sure if this feels like a 90s movie like it feels like a it doesn't like a a 50s movie or a 60s film uh it feels out of a different age it does yeah i mean you're getting into the 90s you're getting into uh, stuff like the matrix and they um, certainly took more risks in the 90s than they do nowadays and we're willing to kind of um uh, I don't know. I think I we're think like, into, this movie would be worse if it were more similar to the hit '90s film Biodome, for example, <laughs> which is really you know emblematic of '90s. I, I don't know. I, I would kind of. I, I would pay a lot of money to see this movie remade with Pauly Shore as Dicky. <laughs> or they're not in Italy. They're in the Biodome. <laughs> yes. Kills him in the Biodome, and then. You know, <laughs> How do you hide a body in the biodome? You can't. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I I just I, this is a funny note that I took. I, we don't have to go into it, but it's I love aggressively melodramatic Italian operas echoing the plot points of doomed protagonists. <laughs> That's so like a, true. A thing that happens in so many movies after they've killed someone or done something bad or betrayed their father, they go to the opera and they see that exact sort of plot. <laughs> play out <laughs> yeah you always do that thing when you're on trains spook with your neck yeah spook um are we all good i think yeah, we've i'm kinda, good i think we've kind of teed up the 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 thrill of the film quite a bit mm-hmm. i guess that puts the ball in my court huh this is a big act to follow, Corey. Yeah, it sure is. Um, if we, if in fact, if we hadn't watched The Sandlot two last week, this movie would would be way worse. That's the only reason we think it's good. Yeah, it's just relative to The Sandlot two, it's a masterpiece. But relative to uh, the, the the Goblin, um, it's Goblin, <laughs> Goblin. Um, <laughs> what you said, Goblin? Funny. <laughs> yeah. Can you hit me with a Goblin quick? Goblin. <laughs> um, so I said earlier that I've I've been having kind of a weird weird couple weeks, and I just kind of want to watch some dumb shit. That's essentially what I said. Oh. Um. So. <laughs> God damn it. So I've chosen to to do that. Uh, this is something that I almost picked several weeks ago, probably months ago now, for being realistic. But um. I think it's time to watch. Uh, go back to the to the TMAO watering hole of oh. horror movie sequels from the eighties, and okay. uh, watch Slumber Party Massacre Two. Great! I've never seen it, but I'm down. Okay. There's a big like phallic drill guitar on the poster. Sounds like mm-hmm. body trouble. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so yeah. Summer Party Massacre Part 2. Summer Party Massacre 1 is such a good movie. So I'm curious to see 
how they chose to escalate it because clearly they've just made it sillier. That's the impression I get from the poster. So I'm curious to see where that goes. Hmm. Liam, have you seen it? It seems like you seem like a guy that would have seen it. No, no, I haven't seen the oh, second you haven't. one. Oh, fuck yeah. So this will be cool then. Yeah. This could be a big one. This could be an iconic piece of like horror lore here. I'm That'll stoked. Good pick. Oh yeah. Right. People are more open to it than I initially anticipated. Don't worry, we're lying. <laughs> <laughs> we learn from the best. Uh well, speaking of lies, uh Mitch must have something to plug, right? I could fuck this icebox. I love it so much. <laughs> People are saying this. Uh, Liam, do you have anything you'd like to plug? I have a film writing alter ego named Graham the Haunted Marshmallow. Uh, Twitter and Letterboxd account. Username is Graham the Mallow. You can see uh, what I'm up to. Have you ever used that identity to pretend to be like somebody else and gotten into some scrambles or... Yeah, how do you think I came up with this name? I didn't invent it. Oh, there was there was a Graham, the Haunted Marshmallow there, uh, previously? There was, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you go far enough back on my letterbox, you might see some ratings. You'll be like, I don't think Liam would have felt that way. That's kind of out of character, and you're right, it wasn't me. If you want to hear the other podcasts that I do, uh, if you go to mortalcombatconquest.ca, which is a URL that I now have, uh, you will find links to this show. You will find links to Strat 2, which is an F1 podcast that I do with our friend Callum. And you will find MK PodQuest, which is a show that I do with a friend Neil about all kinds of Mortal Kombat stuff and occasionally other fighting games, but usually the weird ephemera like comic books and cartoons. And links to all of that, again, MortalCombatConquest.ca. I am overjoyed that we have that URL. <laughs> it's like the funniest thing in the world. And uh, I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mr. Corey Price. Thank you all once again for listening to this episode of They Made Another One. You can find us here at this show all over the internet on Twitter at They Made Another, which is all one word and on Letterboxd at TMAO. You can find episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Breaker, and everything else as They Made Another One. You can reach us via email at tmaopodcast at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, questions, comments, and if you want to fuck the icebox. Our fantastic thumbnail art is done by Jade Dickinson. You can find on Instagram at Jade Sketches. And with all that out of the way, we're going to have a slumber party massacre as well next week on They Made Another One.